It's been a blessing talking to many of you about the very series that we have begun. And I've had some wonderful conversations with a number of you about this very subject of God's sovereignty. And last time we basically launched this discussion, introduced this section of study by going to Revelation 19 and verse 6. And remember, it was there that John saw this remarkable, breathtaking vision whereby he witnessed worship, the worship of the saints of God, of their Redeemer, their Lord. So John says, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. And last time I suggested to you that that statement, that song, gives us an abundance of theology that is worth considering. The word itself, hallelujah, remember, is a command. And it is hallel, with the pronominal suffix, hallelujah, you praise Yah, which is a contracted form of Yahweh. You praise Yahweh, this reminds us of the worthiness of our God to be praised. And then it says, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty, Pantocrator, the one who has all, Pantos, might, Kratos. He possesses all might, all power, all authority. And then when it says at the very end that he reigns, this comes from the word basiluo, which speaks of the idea of a king and his kingly reign, his dominion, his authority over all things. This song, this expression of praise helps us to think of the fact and remember the fact that our God is king and there is no one above him. And all of this brings us then to the subject of sovereignty. When we talk about God being sovereign, we are saying that he is the ultimate king of all kings and lord of all lords. And last time, we went through and talked about some of the words that are used in the Bible to to speak of this idea of sovereignty. One of the words that speaks of the idea of sovereignty and is sometimes translated as sovereign is the word despota. We talked about how it is that this is a word that we use in the English language and we typically use it as a pejorative to say that someone is a despotic ruler. We're saying that they're a heartless and cruel ruler, but such is never the case with God. All that this word means is a despot is one who owns things and therefore has dominion and authority over what he owns. And so kings are oftentimes referred to as despots. Our God who created and made all things, and there's nothing in existence and came into into being apart from his work, he owns it all. He is the king and owner over all. Another word that we talked about that is oftentimes translated or sometimes translated as sovereign is the word dunamis, power. Paul, writing to Timothy, refers to the Lord in these terms, that he is the only sovereign, the dunamis, the king of kings and lord of lords. Again, 
We talked about why that's an important term. You can have and claim a dominion and have a claim of authority over a people or over land. But if you don't have the power to maintain that dominion, all it is is just vain speech. And we've had many earthly monarchs who have had nothing more than a false claim of authority. The language of Isaiah 43 really reminds us of the fact that God is in fact unchallenged as the king and as the almighty. When he says, before me there was no God formed, and then he says, and there will be none after me, even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? By the way, and this is important, I'm sure you know this and understand this already, but let's just remember, that's what's called a rhetorical question. God isn't sitting there and going, I wonder who can reverse my actions. He's raising the question to make a point. The answer, the obvious answer to the question is, no one can reverse the actions of God. My name is a rhetorical question. Who is like El? Mikael. Who is like him? Again, the answer is no one. Not me, not you. God is above all, transcendently. And so these are the things that we discussed last time. And I, I think I said it then, and I said it to somebody this week, that it feels somewhat criminal just to devote two weeks to the subject of the sovereignty of God. I might break that rule. I might break a few rules about how far we go into this subject, but this is somewhat of a, a brief introduction to what is a vast subject, a very deep well, one that we could go through at great length. But I want us to ground our thinking about what we're talking about when we say we are Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Now, one of the things that I said in passing, it was such a brief comment that I, I, I really failed to expand upon it sufficiently. But one of the things that I think that we need to remember is that as the servants of God, we need to remember that we have been transformed by the grace of God, and now by God's work of grace, it's a joy for us to serve our King. That's not to our credit, that's to the credit of the God who saved us and who made us willing servants. And the reason why I use that, keep using that word willing is because I'm simply wanting to reflect the teaching of Scripture. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament, which is Psalm 110, reminds us that the servants of the King of Kings are a willing people. Psalm 110 and verse 3, it says of the people who serve the King of Kings, it says, thy people will volunteer freely, nedava, in the day of thy dunamis in the Septuagint, thy Dominion, thy power, thy kingly authority. That word, nedava, translated as volunteer freely, is actually in the plural. It's nedavot. Literally, you would say willingnesses, which is a funny word when you think about it. How many times do you use the plural form of the word willing or willingness? Willingnesses. 
A bunch of people who are willing. An army of willing servants is the connotation, is the idea. Sometimes this word is, speak, is used to speak of the idea of a free will offering. In other words, these are a people who are willing to offer themselves sacrificially in the service of the king. And it, that's somewhat reflective of what Paul says when he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Give yourselves to him. Fully, willingly, sacrificially. Why? Because this is who we are by divine grace. And who is this king that we serve? When we go to the beginning of Psalm 110, and this is the most quoted verse of the entire psalm in the New Testament, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. This is God the Father with his Messiah, God the Son, at his right hand. This is the co-regency of the Father and the Son, and this is whom we serve. This is whom we joyfully and willingly bow before and render our lives a servitude to him. And what is his dominion? Verse 2 teaches us that the Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Radha, rule, which speaks of the idea of dominion. Rule in the midst of thy enemies, those who are hostile or at enmity against you. By the way, I'm not going to preach this text this morning, but I'm giving you a review of it. I'm saving this for a little bit later. Those who are conquered by the Father and his Messiah, who sits at his right hand, well, again, they're the willing servants who volunteer freely in the day of thy power, it says in verse 3. And then it says, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. Spurgeon, I think, gives one of the best summaries of this verse where he says, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of, of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast dew of thy, the dew of thy youth. In consequence of sending forth of the rod of strength, namely the power of the gospel, out of Zion, converts will come in great numbers to enlist under the banner of the priest king. Given to him of old, they are his people, and when his power is revealed, these hasten with cheerfulness to, their own, to, to his own sway, appearing at the gospel call as it were spontaneously, even as the dew comes forth in the morning. God regenerates, redeems, and saves a people for his own purposes. And they rise up in the strength and might of the Lord to serve him willingly. And then you ask the question, well, how were they transformed? How was this work of grace accomplished? Well, it is accomplished by the power of the one who is the priestly king of righteousness. That's verse 4. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. You go to Genesis 14 and you see that Melchizedek, who is the type of Christ, was the king of Shalem, the king of peace. He is the king of peace and he is the priestly king of righteousness by his very name. All this points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of Peace and the priestly King of Righteousness, who died on the cross to redeem us and to make us a willing people. But what will happen to those who will not bow the knee to this priestly King of Righteousness? That's verse 5. And this is one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. When you distill the essence of the message of Psalm 110, you have willing servants and those who re remain at enmity against the king of kings. This is the message of Psalm 110. And this is a reminder to us of the fact that when we, we say that we, we are a part of Sovereign Grace Bible Church, we're confessing to people that we are the willing servants of the king of kings. And we invite others to bow the knee to this king or else they will face the judgment that is promised by Almighty God. Brethren, this is the gospel. This is why Matthew Henry refers to Psalm 110 as pure gospel. But no, I'm not preaching Psalm 110 this morning. But I do want to put that hook inside of you and help you to remember and think about that psalm because this really gives us a great summation of what we're even talking about. The sovereignty of God. He is the king. And we're his servants. And what we ended up talking about at the end of last week's sermon was this point that I want to continue this morning, and that is this. This doctrine of the sovereignty of God is a comfort to the people of God, to the children of God. It is an absolute comfort to us. What is the alternative to have a God who's just scrambling around trying to figure things out and he's not sure what the future is, as the open theists want us to believe? No. Our God reigns. And he reigns absolutely. And that's why we can entrust every aspect, every detail of our life to him. And that's the first thing I want to consider here this morning. The second thing we need to think about, and this is also crucial, because it helps us to think about our ministry amidst a world that is at enmity with this sovereign God, and that is this, is that just as that this doctrine is a comfort to us, it is a provocation to the wicked. It is a provocation to the unbeliever. Human flesh hates the doctrine of God's sovereignty. I did, 
before the Lord redeemed me, I couldn't stand it. We need to think about that principle too because this is something that is availed in Scripture repeatedly. And then thirdly and finally, I'd like us to consider some of the implications of these truths and there are many more than we're going to have time to cover, but this has implications in our evangelism, in our daily worship, and in how we minister in the local church. Again, sample platter. Think of the words sample platter. We're just going to take a sampling of these ideas. But let's go back to this first thought, this very important reality of the fact that God's sovereignty is a comfort to the believer. Again, the servants of King Jesus are known for their willingness, their joyful willingness to serve. I alluded to this last time when we talked about James chapter 1 when he says, what? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And then he uses the the verbal knowing. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, that's another way of saying, why are you going through this trial? Because God is bringing about endurance in your life, having set up this trial, having put you through it. James doesn't say, you know, when you come to a trial, find a way to get out of it. Find a way to escape. No, he says, you're going to go through it, and you're going to learn. You're going to grow. You're going to become a different person as you go through it, because the hand of your Heavenly Father is going to carry you through it. And that's why you can rejoice. This is one of the reasons why the sovereignty of God is such a comforting doctrine. Our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he disciplines us and refines us by that discipline. Can I take you back to Psalm 110 verse 3? I promise I wouldn't preach the text, but I I do want to unpack a few more ideas about what that text is teaching. Remember when it says that thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, the the plural form of the word nedavah, which is nedavot, again, speaks of the idea of willingnesses. Willingnesses, an army of willing people. People who have this disposition clearly are a people who understand that this is a comforting doctrine of knowing that their king is on his throne. You're in the middle of a trial? God's still on his throne. He always is. There's never a moment when he's not on his throne. Reigning and ruling and orchestrating the affairs of life. And this is why we have willingness, joyful willingness... Kyle and Dalich in their commentary in the Old Testament say this, Dalich in particular, in order that he may rule thus victoriously, it is necessary that there should be a people and an army. In this day are the people of the king willingnesses, the king's willingnesses, Entirely cheerful readiness, ready for any sacrifices, they bring themselves with all that they are and have to meet him. There is no need of any compulsory, lengthy proclamation calling them out. It is no army of mercenaries, but willingly and complete and quickly they present themselves from inward impulse. Where does that come from? 
How does this inward impulse of willing servitude come from? It doesn't come from the flesh. It comes from the Spirit of God working in the children of God. This is what we call a miracle. It is the miracle of our salvation, and it is the miracle of our ongoing sanctification, and it is all to his glory. I love what Spurgeon says about this same verse. He says this, the church of God requires some assistance. One man doles out a small, as small a trifle as ever he can to keep up his respectability. You do not think he exhibits the spirit of a Christian because he is not willing. But Christ's people are willing. All that they do, they do willingly, for they are constrained by no compulsion but by grace alone. I'm sure we all can do a thing far better when we are willing than when we are forced. God loves his people's services because they do them voluntarily. Voluntarism is the essence of the gospel. Willing people are those whom God delights to have as his servants. He would not have compelled slaves to grace his throne, but free men who with gladness and joy should be willing in the day of his power. What an excellent summary of what this text is teaching us. Especially in the context of the kingly and magisterial presentation of the king of kings on his throne and with Jesus Christ at his right hand. So what does this look like? What does this willingness, this joyful willingness look like? Well, it looks like a lot of things that we can think of in Scripture. But I would say it looks like Paul and Silas preaching the gospel through Macedonia. There we read in Acts 16 and verse 22 that a crowd rose up together against them, Remember that they were beaten with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, the scripture says, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, did more than that, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stalks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were crying and complaining. Is that what the scripture teaches? Oh, how easy it would be to be crying and complaining. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Wow. This is the heart of a willing and joyful servant. Servants who understand that they are where they are because of their sovereign king. When we were in Scotland last year, we visited the grave sites of many of the Scottish covenanters who were brutalized and martyred for their faith. In the midst of the affliction that they faced, the 17th century Scottish minister Alexander Henderson wrote these words about the importance of remembering 
Psalm 110 and verse 3. He says this to comfort those who were afflicted. When the power of God works upon his people, then he makes them to be a willing people. And indeed, it is no small matter to see a people willing in a good cause, for by nature they are, we are unwilling, and naturally we are not set to affect anything that is right except it be through hypocrisy. In other words, that's what nature produces. Our hearts, they are contrary to God, they are proud, disobedient, rebellious, and he who sees and knows his own heart sees all this to be in it. And he knows that it is the Lord who cries upon him and frames his heart in a new mold. God's people are made so willing that if they had a thousand minds, they would employ them all for him. And if they had a thousand faces, they would not let one of them look down, but they would hold them all up for the Lord. This is what... The transformation, transformational work of God's grace does in the life of a genuine child of God. And we need this reminder because we serve in the midst of a hostile world that is at enmity with the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must remember that our joyful servitude is a testimony to this lost and and fallen world. Paul and Silas are singing praises to God. And verse 25 just strikes me every time I read it. And the prisoners were listening to them. I'll bet some of them were thinking to themselves, who in the world sings like this in prison? And what in the world are they so happy about? What is wrong with these people? They're aliens. In this world, what's wrong with them? They're pilgrims, they're sojourners. This is not, this world is not their home. But while they're here, they serve the King of Kings. And it is their joy to do so. That's why they're singing, they're considering it all joy, knowing that. In the midst of various trials, what is God doing? He's bringing about endurance. He's bringing about sanctification. He's refining his people. And you know how the rest of this goes. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and anyone, everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been aroused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he, th- he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed In and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why would he know to ask them that question? Because they were singing about the salvation of their God, and he was one of those listening. Not only those in prison, but the jailer himself, they could all hear it. Paul's response, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. 
Brethren, when we suffer through trials, we must take our eyes off the trial itself and look to heaven and give glory to God. And we may have to confess, I don't understand why this trial is happening. I don't understand it. And that's okay to say that. But what we can say and resolve is that our God, who is infinitely good, has ordained it all for his sovereign purposes. You can't read this text and imagine that Paul didn't struggle before he came to the point of singing, necessarily. We're not given details, but we do know that Paul struggled many times before he came to a place of comfort and joy. I say that because in Acts 18, the Lord Jesus Christ gave Paul a vision and commanded him and said, Do not be afraid any longer. Stop being afraid of men. I'm going to use you as my servant, to paraphrase what he said. And Paul, when speaking of the joy and comfort that he came to, confesses that this came as as a result of his own internal battle and struggle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, speaking of the afflictions and trials that he experienced while ministering the gospel in Asia, he said this, We were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. This is what I know about my Lord. No matter what I go through, in the end, he will deliver me. Our God is good. We don't always understand our circumstances, our trials, why we go through what we go through, but we know that God has ordained the events of our life for our sanctification. And that's why we can serve him willingly and joyfully. Brethren, the story of Joseph should come to our minds in all this, right? Sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, we read in Genesis 37. Yet by God's remarkable sovereign providence, Joseph rose to such a place of prominence in Egypt that he became second in command of Pharaoh himself. Famine struck the land. And so we read that Joseph's brothers came to Egypt to purchase grain, which led to a remarkable encounter between them. Because Joseph was responsible for the sale of grain in Egypt, his brothers had to go to him to make the purchase. But rather than refusing them in their moment of need, Joseph responded with with such remarkable mercy and grace. And he did so heralding the sovereignty of God. As for you, he says, you meant evil against me. But God, but God meant it for good. 
in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. There's no bitterness in Joseph's soul. How? How could that even be? Because Joseph understood this principle. He served the king of kings. And the events and affairs of his life were all ultimately under the sovereign guidance and control of God who meant it for good. You know, if you read the text carefully, you'll notice that Joseph repeats the word hashav, meant, you intended. He says of his brothers, you meant You intended, it was within your will to act in evil against me. But then using the same word, repeating the verb, he says, but God, hashab, meant it for good. Which reminds us that though men are planning evil every day, all day long, God's sovereign and good will prevails over all. That's why we have joy. That's why we have comfort. That's why we serve willingly. And so God's sovereignty is a comfort to his people. But as I also said, God's sovereignty is a provocation to the unbeliever. Human flesh disdains this doctrine. I'll just begin with the words of J.C. Rowell. I think he hits the nail well on the head. He says this, Of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Man can bear to be told that God is great and just and holy and pure, but to be told that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy that he gives no account of his matters, that it is not him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy, these are truths that natural man cannot stand. They often call forth all his enmity against God and fill him with wrath. Nothing, in short, will make him submit to them but the humbling teaching of the Holy Spirit. He's right. And I don't say that as some sort of an academic response. Throughout my years in the ministry, some of the biggest battles I've had to face is over the subject of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. When I left seminary, I was somewhat naive about this whole matter. I just imagined, well, I'll just teach the Bible and everybody will just hear the word and just give glory to God. And I realized that that doesn't always happen that way. When we moved to North Carolina, it was initially for serving as pastor of, mark the name, Grace Bible Church. Except for the word sovereign, it was Grace Bible Church church. When I arrived there, I learned that the previous pastor preached through the book of Romans, but somehow 
managed to skip over chapter 9. Now, when I was told this, I thought, that can't be true. So I started asking people, and I was just, I was really rather incredulous. I thought, really? The whole chapter? And yeah, I had people actually explain to me. They, I, I think they recorded the morning where they, uh, the, the service where he basically said that this is a controversial chapter, and so we just skipped over that and just went on to the next chapter. I then began to learn that within the Bible Belt, as it's called, there are many who disdain, sadly, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Expressions like, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, remind us, ultimately, of the potter's sovereignty over the clay. And this, again, provokes human flesh. This is provocative to the human mind. Human flesh resists such sovereignty, but texts like Romans don't simply vanish when you ignore them. Like Romans 9. But men who imagine that God is not sovereign and who exalt the freedom of man, imagining that man has freedom, are thinking too highly of human flesh and thinking too low of God. Perhaps you heard the story of a woman who came up to Charles Spurgeon after he preached on this text of Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The woman said to Charles Spurgeon, she said, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. Spurgeon replied and said, this is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. And that's spot on, to use the British expression. He's right. How could God love any of his enemies? We're all called enemies because that's what we are apart from divine grace. And it is a miracle of grace that he would even love one. It's an abundant expression of grace that he would love many So many that John says, and I think it's Revelation 8, that they are beyond human number. That's what we call amazing grace. But to simplify the text in Romans 9, after Paul mentions Malachi 1-2, saying, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, and then mentioning God's sovereign right to have mercy on whom he will have mercy, as we read in Exodus 33-19, He then begins in verse 16 with what's called an inferential particle, which is important to follow, especially when you go through Romans 9, because the inferential particles in that chapter are basically giving us some summary arguments for everything that precedes that verse. So when you come to an inferential particle, you know that you're coming to a summary statement, a conclusive statement, a statement that says, this is what I've been saying, this is what I've been arguing, now listen to what I've been saying. And so everything that he's been saying up to that point is this, so then, Ara, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Why does anyone receive mercy? Is it because I can say, well, I deserved it? God gave me his mercy because look at me. I'm special. No, you're not. All have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. All. Who has ultimate freedom in this equation? Only God. God and God alone. Whatever can be said of man's agency, God is ultimately sovereign in the distribution of his mercy and grace. By the way, that's why we call it grace. It's an unmerited gift. But we read on. Paul ends up refuting and rebuking the rebellious heart and the rebellious mind that would actually talk back to God. He says this, and he knows what's going to come. He says, having taught everything he's taught, he says, I know what you're going to say now. I know what you're going to say. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? It's basically saying, shame on you. You're talking back to the Almighty. Stop now. Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? You know, Romans 9.20 is, is in a sense a summary of Isaiah 45.9 where you have, not just in Isaiah, but several times in the book of Isaiah, the the potter and clay metaphor being given. <coughs> it is used on occasions, in one occasion, uh, with reference to the believer. As believers, we confess that God is the potter and that we're the clay, and that's a, that's a joyful confession. So in Isaiah 4, 64 and verse 8, it says, But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, And all of us are the work of thy hand. That's an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving and acknowledgement of God's sovereignty over us. But to the unbeliever, this concept of God being the potter and humanity being the clay provokes this kind of rebellion. And listen to these words of Isaiah 29 verses 15 through 16. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord. By the way, who, gets, who plans anything from God? Uh, who, excuse me, who hides any plans from God? Adam was hiding behind the trees in order to escape the, the sight and vision of Almighty God, the all-seeing God. That was your first indication of the fact that he was, had fallen into sin. I'm going to hide from the omniscient, all-seeing God? Really? No, you're not. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. This is how the natural man responds to the truth of God's sovereignty. Human flesh responds to the doctrine of God's sovereignty with nothing but blasphemy. 
blasphemous claims of autonomy and freedom, blasphemous accusations against the Almighty, declaring that he is not in control and that he's not the sovereign potter. A few weeks ago, I'd mentioned Psalm 12 and verse 4, where the, the wicked say this, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? That's us. Every human being on planet Earth, that's what we are. Filled with the vile presumption of our autonomy and freedom, and it is only by divine grace that we are made to know that, no, God is sovereign, and that we are saved not by our good works, not by our good deeds, not because we merited the mercy and grace that he gives, but because he extended his sovereign love to us. In the end, only Almighty God is the truly free agent. He has unbounded unbounded power, authority, and dominion. And this stirs up the rage of mankind, which stands at enmity against this sovereign king. Remember Psalm 2 and how it is that the nations, they're in an uproar. And it's a remarkable expression in Scripture. But in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, Three, the psalmist raises the question, another rhetorical question, because we know why the nations rage against God. It's because, because of sin. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his Messiah, his anointed. Let us tear their fetters, their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's break free. We have the power to do it. We have the ability to do it. No, you don't. All that this is, is the expression of impotent rage from sinful humanity that does not acknowledge that God is the sovereign king. And he who sits in the heavens, he does what? He laughs. What impotent rage. When Jesus inaugurated his ministry with a brief lesson on God's sovereignty, and that's a remarkable consideration, in Luke chapter 4, we learn that all were speaking well of him after he read from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, But then things shifted dramatically, as we read in verse 24, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You know, the lesson of Christ is quite simple. God sovereignly bypassed the nation of Israel and extended his mercy and grace to Gentiles. And just two of them. 
the Sidonian widow and the Syrian leper. That's it. Really? Does he have the right to do that? (laughs) He has all right, all authority, all power, and all dominion. Don't question what he has the right to do. How did they respond? They praise him. They thank him for his message. It says that all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to do what? In order to throw him off the cliff. When I say that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is a provocation to the natural man, brethren, it clearly is. Having mentioned my ministry in North Carolina, it's a Grace Bible Church. Not Sovereign Grace Bible, it's Grace Bible Church. I had barely just moved my family to North Carolina, and suddenly I found myself surrounded by accusations of all kinds. People accused me that since I believed in the sovereignty of God and my teaching was online, I had all kinds of pages and literature and, you know, I wasn't hiding anything. And I didn't get to the church and start preaching from Romans 9. I was preaching through the book of Revelation. I wanted us to see the beauty of the vision of the glory of Christ, who is the victor and the great champion over sin and death. I wanted to get to the gospel. But no, people wanted to fight me and contend with me over this issue of the sovereignty of God, and they fought and they fought and they fought, accusing me of being a cult leader, a false teacher, passing around literature from Dave Hunt. The previous pastor was stirring this contention. I wasn't there for long. And then I was out of the ministry without an ability to provide for my family. You know, it's one thing to talk about standing for doctrine. It's another thing to put everything on the line for it. Brother, when I say that it is a privilege to preach to you the subject of sovereign grace, Bible, church, take my word for it. It's a privilege. And the truths that we're surveying together, they're crucial. Because as a willing people, we gladly and joyfully serve our sovereign king. That's our message to one another. That's our message to the world. To conclude, as I suggested, there are implications to these truths, and and they're much more than I'm going to fit in the time that I have remaining. You know, I mentioned and I summarized Romans 9 here. You know, obviously when we share the gospel, we're not running to Romans 9, right? People don't have open eyes and hearts to receive complex doctrine yet. If they're not saved, we don't expect them to. But we do need to remember that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is there in the gospel, at least in its kernel form. And the kernel form of which I speak is this, is Jesus is king. And someday every knee shall bow before him. And every tongue will confess 
that he is Lord. The children of God will do so joyfully and willingly as an expression of worship. The lost will do so as their final confession before they're damned. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is what we must remind people of. And the reason why all that is true is because our Lord is king. He is the sovereign king. And our invitation to them is to know and understand that today is the day of salvation and that God delights in extending his mercy and grace. And our call to them is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, just as Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer. We're to remind them, as Spurgeon said, if his first coming does not give you eternal life, his second coming will not. If you do not hide in his wounds when he comes as your Savior, there will be no hiding place for you when he comes as your judge. This does impact evangelism. It also impacts our daily worship, and to some extent I've already covered this. I don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow or the next day or the next day or over the, after that, But when James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, he doesn't say, if you encounter various trials. The language is predictive. It's it's anticipatory. It is, when? You're going to have trials. There's no place on earth you're going to hide where you're going to not have trials. By the way, in my flesh, I imagine vainly that I'm somehow going to have a little cubbyhole where I can just get rid of my trials sometimes. It's a part of our human frailty to think this way. James says, no, when? It's going to happen, but what are you going to do? He says, rejoice, knowing, 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 knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God has a, a divine plan for what you're going through. Let this be your daily act of worship, knowing that God is producing endurance in you. He's refining you. He's conforming you to the image and likeness of his son. This is the ultimate expression of our heavenly father, of his love, that he would do this, that he would patiently endure us and sanctify us so that we would in fact be like more and more like his son. And then in the local church, We ought to encourage one another in these matters. May God give us the grace to exhort and encourage and build up one another with these things. May we remember when people go through trials, like Paul, sometimes you get to the point where you're despairing even unto death. Or even where you have to be told, as Jesus taught Paul and commanded Paul, stop being afraid. We need to be patient with people when they're going through trials, but we eventually need to help them to see King Jesus and understand what you're going through has a divine purpose. And I'm here to pray with you, and I want to encourage you. I don't know what it all means. I don't have to know, and neither do you. But God is good, and God loves you, and he's doing the right thing. 
even though I can't understand it. You know, when Paul wrote to Philemon, you know what he called himself? He didn't call himself a prisoner because of what the Jews did to him. He didn't call him a prisoner of the Romans. He called himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. (laughs) Think about that. He's acknowledging the fact that he was in prison because of God's sovereign will. That's the language of a joyful, willing servant who serves King Jesus. So may God give us the grace to comfort one another, to encourage one another, and to speak to the lost and dying of this world about our Lord and King, that they too would know the joy that we know, to have the joy that we have. Brethren, I'd like to ask you now to turn to a hymn. Hymn number 392. The hymn is called Nearer, Still Nearer. I'm going to do this. I'm going to cheat in advance. How many know this hymn, please? Nearer, Still Nearer. Okay. All right. Well, I won't be doing a solo, but those of you who know it, and that's the grace of God to you, uh, but those of you who know it, project. Look at the words of this hymn, though. 392. The first verse gives us a general cry to God that we would be brought nearer to him. And as God sanctifies us, that's exactly what he's doing. He's drawing us nearer to him. Near, still nearer, close to thy heart. Draw me, my Savior, so precious thou art. Fold me, oh, fold me close to thy breast. Shelter me safe in that haven of rest. Then the question comes, how can we be drawn close to this almighty and holy God? Well, it's not by our merit, but it is by the sole merit of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Near, still near, nothing I bring, not as an offering to Jesus my King, only my sinful, now contrite heart. Grant me the cleansing thy blood doth impart. And then in the third verse, we're brought to eternity. Our heart cry to be brought closer and closer to God will be fulfilled in glory. And this is our great joy. Near, still near, while life shall last, till safe in glory my anchor is cast through endless ages ever to be near my Savior, still nearer to thee. What a blessed hope we have. It is a real and sure hope, and it is the very basis of our joy. We are going to be with our Lord forever and ever without end, without sin whatsoever. Let's stand together and let's sing this to the Lord.
because we agree. We sing in agreement with these words that it is our heart's desire to be near to you. Continue to work your work of grace in us, we ask, that we would, in fact, be conformed all the more to the image and likeness of your Son, and that in eternity we will be with you forevermore, without end. All these things we petition and pray in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.